Hi, and welcome to the Luminaries In and Out of Sect podcast, a show about the moon and how astrologers embody and relate to it. My name is S.B. Hall, and I'm your host. In today's episode on the Sagittarius moon as the sect light, I speak to my friend, the astrologer Aaron Tack Shipley. In this conversation, we talk about both of our Sag moons and also talk about a lot more. From our Jupiters in the eighth house of our charts, to Leonian nature, to planetary joys, and myths about the moon. But we also get into some heavier topics, so here's a bit of a trigger warning. We discuss such topics as death, death phobia, and grief. We talk about appropriation and colonization and potential challenges in reimagining myth in our time. So if these are sensitive subjects for you, I would proceed with that in mind. I also want to reiterate that I am a student astrologer, not a professional astrologer, and definitely not an expert. I still have a lot to learn. I hope that you can receive what I say in this episode with the understanding that I'm in a state of flux, learning, growth, and that I might get it wrong from time to time. But I think Aaron and I had a very rich, free-flowing conversation, and I'm really excited to share it with you today. Please be sure to check out the show notes for links to Aaron's website, as well as links to some of the resources that we touch on in our conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Aaron. It's good to see you. How are you doing today? Oh, it's good to see you. I'm doing super well in the wake of the astro weather that we've been experiencing. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I know that it was, uh, you know, you were just telling me before that it was a, a hard transit for you, but uh, I'm glad that that you came out of that all right. So let's start with you on your own terms, giving a, you know, a brief introduction to yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Erin, also known as E.T. Shipley. Uh, I am a consulting astrologer. Uh, I also teach. I'm a writer. I consider myself an artist. I'm a dog mom, a wife, and partner. I live on the lands of the Amamutsan, Popoluchum, Awaswas, and Ohlone peoples, also known as Santa Cruz, California, or colonially known as Santa Cruz, California. And it's a really interesting place. Uh, I often look to the land that I'm on as like a way of situating or contextualizing myself because my identity is feels like it's always shifting and I think the land inherently brings up that relationship Um, and so much of my identity I think is a conglomeration of relationships Um, and so where I live is uh, really close to the ocean And there's also, um, I'm situated between like a harbor and a lagoon. And there's the the redwoods that sort of border 
the edge of Santa Cruz before you get to the bay. And so we get these like ocean winds that come in and out and the fog line, if you go up into the hills, you can see the fog um, hovering over Santa Cruz and the land sort of like whispers and swirls and has this really like magical fairy tale quality to it. Um, and it's also a, a place of escape for folks with an incredible amount of privilege coming from mm. the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And um, there's a lot of extraction here. And there's construction that's been happening in multiple spots on my block for over a year of these like giant houses and um there's a lot of like grief uh there's this algae that collects over the lagoon in the morning and by the end of the day it has sort of separated and so oftentimes in the morning I'll walk down to the lagoon and it's covered in green and at the end of the day it's this like dark rich bluish black and there's oak trees that are constantly beginning to grow um, because there's so many squirrels that are planting acorns. And uh, I have a really strong association to the goddess Athena and there's an olive tree uh, that is pretty old and grows right outside my bedroom window. It doesn't have any fruit on it. Yeah, I could say more, but I'll leave it there. I think that there's um, so much that the land has to offer us and mm. I feel really grateful to be held here in this time mm. that was so beautiful thank you for for sharing that one thing off off the bat was just uh, identifying with this idea of identity and flux and I feel like first I'll say that uh you were the first person to give me an astrology reading and so <laughs> It feels very uh, apropos that you would be uh, doing this first episode with me. It's like, feels like the completion of some kind of cycle or like, I don't know, you and I, we like open, feels like I open chapters with you in relation to astrology in particular. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it, I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to do this Sag Moon episode with you you know, being a fellow Sag Moon. And um, yeah, I really related to that idea of identity being in flux and identity being in flux in relation to the land. Um, and hopefully we will get more into that when we talk about Sagittarius a little bit more in depth and when we talk about the moon a bit more in depth. But I also wanted to say as a person that grew up by the ocean in New York City, I'm very... Uh, I'm very mindful of how powerful being near water of that kind of expanse can be. And um, yeah, I was just reminded of us walking around Santa Cruz together, um, walking past that lagoon, walking your dog, <laughs> walking your dogs around um, town and just talking. And um, yeah, it's a very special place, um, a special, special land with the, the meeting of the redwoods and the ocean and the lagoon and yeah. And with all of the socioeconomic 
complications there as well so yeah I think what's coming to mind for me that I'm really interested in as you're talking about us walking around and the meeting of these like intersecting geographies is Mm -hmm. how much gets renewed by the ocean by the Mm -hmm. tides and the winds and because the redwoods mark this like barrier to the bay it has this like sleepy quality to it but Mm. also this like repetitive um recycling of air and water and spirit Mm. uh that is incredibly lunar yes um and really dreamy which also is like lunar and we can talk about that a little bit with um the myth of selene and and demion but yeah yeah absolutely that's just what's coming to mind as you're like sharing about us moving around the space (laughs) yeah yeah and the cancer placements in both of our charts i think because i think they're quite prominent for both of us there's something very cancer cap about this space Mm, yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense to me okay do you want to get into a little bit of how we how we know each other and how we met um yeah sure do you want to start or you want me to go uh you can go okay well, we met through a friend who is also a Sag moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I honestly, um, yeah, I feel so comfortable with other Sag moons. There's something about that. And I think we talked about this when we first realized that we were both Sag moons and that our moons were like basically conjunct by a degree. Um, there's this general sense of ease Um and ability to like flow with whatever is emerging um and sometimes I think it it can lack a little bit of direction but what it lacks in like focused direction it makes up for in um like enthusiasm and zest for life Mm. and so it doesn't lack movement it just is um yeah fun to fun to follow along um and I feel like there's a lot of uh shifting from following to leading and back again and like joining a group and then breaking off and not really being worried about what type of space you're taking up um and so when we met uh I think actually the first time we met was during I had gone down to stay with Kira to born at Norwalk for Norwalk 2021 when it was still virtual with like a bunch of friends and mm-hmm. you showed up like the night of and I think you were like just breaking the iceberg of or like tapping the iceberg of astrology <laughs> at the time is that right yeah it's so funny looking at um, actually haven't really thought about this, but I'm so glad you're bringing it up, reflecting on where I was at, uh, with my astrological studies, uh, in, at Norwalk 2021, which was nowhere basically, <laughs> uh, to, to Norwalk 2022, which I think was like kind of the real, real kind of start in earnest of my studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I remember, uh, at Kira's house, people like talking about, it just seemed like it was like a, it was English, but it was like, like it was a language that I 
knew the words to, but the way that the words were coming together didn't make sense to me. And so people were like, oh, where's your, where's your Jupiter compared to this person's Jupiter? And it's like, oh, it's at three, whatever, and three, four, five, whatever. And and I was just like, how do these people remember these details? And like, (laughs) how is this, how is this a important fact? But it, yeah, it's really, really interesting. I had very, very little astrological knowledge at that point, other than like uh, passing knowledge of like my big three and, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. And it's so funny to see, like, because then you actually drove through Santa Cruz on the way to NARAC 2022 um, and spent some time with um, with me and my wife and another friend. And we got to, like, have a, a NORAC pregame, if you will. Yeah. Um, but like with astrology and language and um yeah, walking the dogs around the harbor and um just seeing the leaps and bounds <laughs> that you made, leaps being a very like Sagittarian term. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, in know-how. Uh and then watching you sort of blossom in your discovery at NORAC 2022 and attending Jason Hawley's lecture together and um, a bunch of other lectures and walking around the weird mall. (laughs) Just like very, yeah, so much flow. Yeah. Really, really have enjoyed that space that we've shared. I really appreciate that reflection. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the mall and the moon sinistry really reminds me of uh like you before we started recording you were commenting about my structured uh mercury and capricorn and um i was when you were talking about um our sag moons i was just reminded of that mall conversation we had because it was very like uh kind of like playing a, a game um but the game is like having a conversation about things that are emotionally important to us in the container uh, store. In the container <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah, just like, like really just the icing on the cake. The the people that worked there were like, "Are you guys gonna buy something? Do you want anything?" <laughs> no, nah, we're just gonna. No, we just want to be held by these containers. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny in the container store. Yeah, yeah, you've played a an important part in my my astro journey so far. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about Norwalk, I think later on but I just wanted to kind of like break the ice on the moon conversation we're moving into so when you think about your childhood um, I wonder if there's uh, a memory that you have that comes to mind in relation to the moon or what was your relationship to the moon at that point in your life Hmm. you know I was a kid who was really into creating um, I was like very Piscean. I would pick forget-me-nots between the bricks behind the house, the first house I lived in that I remember living in. And I would like roll down the grassy hill behind it. And and I would look up at the stars at night and I had a, I was filled with a lot of wonder, but I wasn't like, I wouldn't say I had like a really intense experience of the moon until I was eight or nine. Um, we had just moved to the second house I grew up in of two and my dad the the house had a um 
a bunch of glass doors on the back side of it and my dad and like this deck we lived like in the middle of nowhere and mm. my dad bought a telescope uh, and my dad is also a sag moon nice and i remember my dad like bringing the telescope through one of the doors onto the deck um and focusing it on the moon and bringing me over and having me look at it and it was the first time i'd seen the moon's craters and um yeah, there was just like a lot of awe, but it's interesting to me to to have a connection to the moon, um, to my dad as opposed to my mom, because I think mm. the moon is so often associated with mother. And I don't by any means deny that connection if you look at the myths. And my dad is like one of my favorite travel buddies. And um, he's just got this very adventurous, like curious, good natured spirit and uh, our shared moon, I think holds a lot of where that connection is rooted. Yeah. That's so interesting because um, so my mom and I both actually have a Sag moon and like she, between my mom and my dad, she was like, the the travel buddy for me like mm-hmm. we, we would do a lot of like both long-term and short and just like short-term travel with each other um and then I think I don't have a birth time for my dad um but I do think he he very well may be a um Scorpio moon mm. and so it's a very different my dad and I had a uh a, a close relationship emotionally but it's it was very different um mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that you kind of bring that up. Do you do you know where your mom's moon is? Yeah, it's in Aries. <laughs> it's in Aries. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Like I hope she's okay with me sharing that. I mean, I will say that like most of my best friends to this day have Sag or Aries moons. And mm. I don't know if I would connect that to my parents so much as I think the um I think the moon Mars connection is really interesting. Um, and, and I think we see that in a lot of the myths about the moon, um, and also sect and, uh, yeah, there are so many pieces to it, but I, there's something about having like a Sag moon, a fire moon that has a lot of movement in it that, um, I think emotionally Sag moons and Aries moons understand each other. Cause when they have like a big feeling, they like need to get it out mm, and then they yeah. move on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you don't have to share this if, if you're not comfortable with it, but I was uh, struck by your Venus and Aries, and I was just curious um, how close that uh, your mom's moon is to your Venus and Aries. You know, I would need to pull it up. I don't actually have her okay. chart memorized. No worries. Um, Oh, it's pretty far off. Her moon is more in a trine to my moon than in a conjunction to my Venus. Ah, okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Which is true of most of my favorite Aries. Well, actually, yeah, most of my Aries moon folks either have a conjunction to my Venus or a trine to my moon within like three degrees. Mm. And therefore have a trine to your Jupiter as well. Yes. Yeah. Not to go back to the last question, but I think that that's one thing that is interesting to me about our relationship is that I feel like maybe there's something going on with our Jupiters as well, because my mm. Jupiter is in Cancer and therefore mm-hmm. would be in your seventh house and your 
Jupiter's in um, in Leo and would therefore be in my ninth, ninth house. So it's like a little bit hard for my moon to see my Jupiter. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's maybe a little bit hard for your sun to see your Jupiter. And mm-hmm. so I don't know, just looking at our charts, I was a little bit just wondering about that. And I don't have a, you know, I haven't really come to a conclusion, but it's seems interesting to me. Yeah. Let me, I'm like playing up your chart here to see. Yeah. It's interesting. The, like the, the averse mutual receptions and the question of whether it's really a mutual reception. Um, I think even if it's not, at least from the lunar perspective, which for me implies um, a cyclical but non-linear way of being. Mm. And in from that perspective, I think the mutual reception does apply. It just doesn't apply in the like perfectly wrapped up box that is diurnal consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to to agree. There's some kind of um I don't even know the word for for it. It feels kind of like a a backdoor or I'm reminded of like the I don't know if you're familiar with the matrix, but I'm reminded of like the key master for some reason. And the key master mm. can like open a door and walk through a door into another world and that's how I kind of feel about those mutual receptions that are not in traditional uh major aspects is that it's kind of like there is a connection, but it's this, you have to access it in this way that's not completely direct, which I think for me feels like meditation is so important for mm-hmm. accessing my my Jupiter um, mm-hmm. because it is in the eighth house and it's um, averse to my ascendant and my, you know, the my other Sag planets. Uh, and so there is this kind of like accessing Jupiter through liminality Mm -hmm. Uh, thing that happens yeah yeah. I was gonna say it's like limbic resonance (laughs) Mm. Yeah, like in the sense of like the limbic system being this like really complex system of like nerves that all connect but it's not entirely clear how and um it requires going to strange places yeah that would not be obvious to feel into the resonance there yeah i feel like we're not going to get through all these questions because you keep saying things that bring up oh that's so like i'm taken (laughs) in other places but um it that's fine whatever (laughs) one of the things that is interesting i guess we'll get into this in question you know down the road when we talk about the third house but your placement of your sun in the third house Hmm. and your jupiter in the eighth in leo uh and the third house is the third house is association with not necessarily the limbic system, but the mind in some way, like the kind mm. of the kind of um, neural, I don't know, system or hardware of the mind. And so that just feels striking to me that you describe it in that way. Yeah, I think for me, that's such an interesting correlation too, um, because when I hear people associate the third house with the mind, I can't help but think of like the 12 letter alphabet and like Mm. Gemini being overlaid with the third house. 
and being yeah. ruled by Mercury, which is very mental. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't. <laughs> I don't agree with that yeah. <laughs> way of orienting because I, my techniques are really rooted in Hellenistic tradition. But from the rooting in the Hellenistic tradition, I do see the moon's association with the mind, though more um oh and just for the record i'm like referring to the scheme of the planetary joys where the moon Mm. gets its joy in the third house and i love thinking about like the moon as soma as body and the ways that we enact like theories or ideas or values about the world um that we're wanting to live in the world in the third house, in the space of our immediate environment. And from the perspective of the third house, indicating our immediate environment and situating us in like a relational context, um, there is a lot of, I think, mental energy that does go to that space um, mm-hmm. to like constantly tending, um, reimagining our relationship to like life herself. Mm. Yeah, I I really appreciate you bringing up the 12 letter alphabet schema and your, you know, lack of use of that uh, for, you know, for lack of a better term that's coming to mind right now, um, because I do think, like, I didn't learn that schema at all, but I do think that we can inherit uh, ideas that maybe are good or or are not and by good i mean like kind of quality or rooted in a system but that maybe we and i'll speak for myself that i kind of took that on a little bit unreflectively and so it's good to be reminded of like hey that may be this this schema and me asking myself okay uh is that something that i really want to an idea that I really want to carry forward because I generally don't use that uh, 12 letter alphabet system. And uh, I kind of appreciate more of the planetary joys system, if it can be called that. So I really appreciate that. Uh, And one thing that you reminded me of not to really jump ahead too much is Gloria Anzaldúa, her work and her, she's, you know, I learned about her from you and she's a, she's a, a writer uh, that has a very, I think, lunar way of orienting to writing, uh, which is, let me see if I can find the quote. I have one ready to. Yeah, want. please. You, you, t- <laughs> you take it, please. Um, yeah, I think like her her way of writing is lunar in that it's cyclical. Like she's constantly referring back to something that she's already mentioned, but doing it in a different way. And she's constantly like deconstructing and reconstructing her ideas and also talking about the fact that she's deconstructing and reconstructing her ideas. And in her book, Luz on lo Oscuro, Light in the Dark, Rewriting Identity, Spirituality, Reality, which was published posthumously. And it was her thesis at uh, for her PhD, I believe, at uh, UC Santa Cruz, where she lived out the latter years of her life, which 
was so interesting to me, but that's another tangent. She has a really strong relationship to an Aztec goddess of the moon, which I hope I'm not butchering this name, uh, Queolwaki. And on page 29 of Luz en Oscuro, she writes about soul loss and susto. She says, the process of falling apart, the Queolwaki process of being wounded, is a sort of shamanic initiatory dismemberment that gives suffering a spiritual and soulful value. The shaman's initiatory ordeal includes some type of death or dismemberment during the ecstatic trance journey. Torn apart into basic elements and then reconstructed, the shaman acquires the power of healing and returns to help the community. To be healed, we must be dismembered, pulled apart. The healing occurs in disintegration, in the demotion of the ego as the self's only authority. By connecting with our wounding, the imaginal journey makes it worthwhile. Healing images bring back the pieces. Heal las rajaduras. As Hillman notes, healing is it, she's talking about James Hillman. As mm. Hillman notes, healing is a deep change of attitude that involves an adjustment and abandonment of ego heroics. It requires that we shift our perspective. Mm. Yeah, I find I find her perspective so so very interesting. Um, I think the the quote that I saw in reference to her orientation to writing was this idea of writing as a gesture of the body, um, mm. which feels so lunar. And her, you know, I don't I don't want to like pit Mercury against the moon in any way, but mm. I, I'm I'm really reminded of her approach to um, philosophy, we'll say, uh, as like not an intellectual approach, an embodied approach, um, mm-hmm. and her talking about these ideas uh, as something that's coming from her body with the mind as a part of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Like this, I mean, maybe I'm reading into this a little bit, uh, but there's not this dualism between a disembodied mind thinking thinking itself, there's this kind of embodiment of mind that is essential and enforces her her writing and her thinking. And that is really tied up in this process that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say the name of the goddess because I don't want to uh, get it wrong, but um, this Aztec moon goddess uh, that she refers to to kind of summarize what you just said, I think she says it represents the psychic and creative process of tearing apart and putting together. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was really reminiscent to me of kind of like the phases of the moon and the collection of light uh, as the moon contacts planets and separates from planets. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. She says that it's representing a a painful fragmentation and also the the promise of transformative healing. And Mm -hmm. I was reminded of the conversation that you uh, did a few years ago with Sabrina Monarch on her podcast, uh, Magic of the Spheres, because you kind of talk about this idea of wellness, wellness, and you relate it to something else. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting right now, but basically this idea is like, if there's not a wound, there's no need for healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on on your thoughts on this and how it's impacted your perspective or your spirituality or your kind of way of doing astrology. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I think, wow, there's so many places that my mind is going. Mm. Um, I think the moon is really interesting because the light of the moon is a projection Mm. of the light of the sun, or it's a reflection of a projection. And so the moon to me is a really relational planet. And Mm. um, there are like powers of empathy that are inherent to the moon and also othered from the moon because of its connection to projection and when I first got into activism that's funny I say that and I and in hindsight like I think I've first gotten into activism in a series of different moments in my life um uh which is very like lunar um Mm. but it usually is a product of me coming into relationship with someone or a group of people whose oppression of which I was unaware before being in that relationship or putting myself in that relationship or being sort of planted in that relationship. And so there's this experience of like, of, I don't want to say empathic wounding, but um, maybe sympathetic is a, is a better term for it. Um, but like witnessing or loving someone or a group of people, or just like having this like aching, beating heart for humanity and seeing pain in humanity and wanting to do something about it, um, Mm. is how I've come into taking a stand for different causes um, or different people in my life and today I feel really conscious of like appropriating other people's pain and so I'm wary of that and I'm wary of certain types of projection and I'm also really interested in myth as you know there's so many different versions of so of Greek myths but of virtually any myth like even Jesus has you know thousands of different versions of how he came to be and what he did and most myths were used to carry teachings of what um of how we move through the world and i promise i'm going to bring this back around to your question (laughs) Um, i'm sure you will and i think uh the the planetary joy scheme is really important for me here because i really see the third house as a place of like ritual and devotion Um, Mm. and like a place where we find like local temples um, or land-based sites of reverence. And those are the places where we construct and deconstruct and reconstruct myths and we retell Mm. them as teachings for how to be in the world together as humans um, and with other than humans. Uh, And they're also the places where we go when we feel most pained moments where our grief is in seems insurmountable um, and we have to turn to like a spiritual power or a power that's like bigger than human to solve it um, Mm. or also to have like a paradigm shift about how the world operates and so when Gloria and Zaldua is talking about the way that this myth of Kweowaki, who was, it's interesting, let me backtrack a little bit. So yeah, in the myth of Kweowaki, she was uh, the daughter of Kwa'atliku, Kwa'atliku, 
Um, and she, who was the goddess of life and death and earth. Um, and Kweolwaki had, I think, 400 brothers, maybe, um, mm-hmm. who became the stars. Um, and in in the myth, um, Kweolwaki had a feather or a bundle of feathers that came down from the sky and landed on her chest. And she became impregnated. Mm. And because they didn't know who fathered the child, Koyolaki was extremely angry with her mother. And this myth is reflective of a specific cultural time and context where Mm. it actually wasn't okay for a woman to become pregnant with a child without knowing who the father was um, Mm. or without having a relationship to the father. And, or at least that's how I interpret it. Um, I'm sure that it was designed by some imperial force Mm. um, and retold in different ways by different imperial forces. So that's important to recognize here. So in the myth, there's there's another brother whose name is escaping me and I probably would mispronounce as well. Um, But he goes and he tells the mother that um, Koyalwaki is gathering all of her brothers to come and kill the mother mm-hmm. for her like treason so to speak mm-hmm. and this one brother promises to protect the mother um and sure enough right at Koyalwaki's arrival the mother births her new son who proceeds to kill Koyalwaki um her whole her, her new son it's kind of an athenian thing where he's born fully exactly which is part of the reason i resonate so much with this myth because it reminds me so much of uh of athena's story where it's described which is connected to the um the fall of the matriarchy and the rise of the patriarchy Mm -hmm. so he um he decapitates koyalwaki and throws her head into the abyss and it becomes the moon um, and he dismembers her and all of her body parts supposedly become the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the other brothers are also killed and become the stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it represents the rot. This myth represents the rise of the, of the Aztec civilization. Um, and the movement from one city um, towards the, um, they like were seeking to to not titlan their like utopic space, um, and I don't know enough about it to flesh it out in detail. Most of what I know about Koyalwaki comes from Gloria Anzaldúa's work, mm-hmm. which is actually like a riff on this old myth that she has deconstructed and reapplied in ways that work for her specific intersectional feminism. Yeah. And she actually reclaims Koyolwaki, who is demonized in this myth, um, as a guide for Mm. how to move through the world and how to create paradigm shifts Mm -hmm. uh, from the pains of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is, like, so wildly lunar this like constant like deconstructing of a myth and then retelling it in a new way or from Mm. the perspective of a different character 
And when I think of uh, Selene and Tiphius, the demon that was called into being at the time of the fall of the Titans and the rise of the Olympians, like when the Titans were last, you know, their last gasp for power before the Olympians took over, they created this demon that was like bigger and better and more like wild than all these other demons. And that's actually, this myth is associated with Pisces, but that's besides the point. There is a point in that myth where Selene is fighting with Tiphius with one of his heads and she's got the orb of the moon and then the bull's horns around the orb. And she's mm. got one of Tiphius's head locked in to her horns. But because Tiphius also has horns, she's scarred the orb Mm. of her the sphere of her body is scarred Mm. and that's how the moon got its craters Mm. and so when i'm thinking about all of the myths that i know of that are associated with the moon or the various goddesses that are associated with the moon in or gods depending on which culture you're looking at um, Mm. the moon never comes out unscathed Mm. the moon always experiences wounding Mm. even uh, Artemis uh, at in the Trojan War was her bow was stolen by Hera, and um, she was sent like in tears back to wherever from Hera's blows. And so there's something about the nature of the moon that is actually like it doesn't avoid conflict. Like the moon goes right into conflict. And Mm. I think we can connect that to the moon's relationship to Mars um, by sect. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also Venus, which represents reconnection. So we have conflict and then we have connection, uh, both falling under the nocturnal domain of the moon. And I think when we're talking about this idea of like wellness and wounding and the bond between them, the moon represents the cyclical nature of that bond. Mm -hmm. Um, That like, we don't need healing if there isn't a wound. Yeah. And life is inherently traumatic Mm -hmm. and life is inherently wounding. Like, um we're mortal there are vulnerabilities nobody comes out unscathed everyone is scarred um so when i think about it in that sense um the the moon isn't interested in in conflict avoidance the moon is interested in more so in where conflict sits in the cycle of like compost and regeneration yeah yeah, that's, I feel like that's so beautiful and so apt. And I have a lot that I want to say about that. Two things I want to do before we kind of do that. And I think move on to like what the moon means in Sag, because I feel like you're you're starting to touch on that in some ways, is I just want to kind of reiterate um, some of Gloria Anzaldúa's ideas about this Aztec moon goddess to kind of, yeah, reiterate what you, what you have said. Um, one of the things that really struck me about one of her quotes on, I'll just read it is she says, nuestra tarea, which is our work is to envision this goddess, not dead and decapitated, 
but with eyes wide open. Mm. Our task is to light up the darkness. She goes on to say that the, the imperative of this goddess is both the process of emotional, physical dismemberment, splitting body, mind, spirit, soul, and also the creative work of putting all the pieces together in a new form. Mm. A partially conscious work done in the night by the light of the moon. Mm. I feel like that speaks so beautifully to what you said about sect and this kind of partnership of the moon with Mars and Venus, this process of splitting fragmentation in Mars and this process of reiterating or uh, reconfiguring, bringing together in different ways, in the ways that are necessary for maybe the work that needs to be done Mm -hmm. um, with Venus. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too that Huitzilpochtli, the god, the Aztec god that was birthed from Coatliku who killed Coyolwaki is associated with Aries Mm. and Mars. Um, And obviously none of these cultures myths can be mapped over each other they can't be laid over each other like identical puzzles Mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way but i do think there is something really interesting about the figures in different cultures around the world that share resonance with planetary deities Mm. and i appreciate the interconnections as a lunar person Mm. who like i'm not i I don't think that the myth of quayowaki or the myths of selene or artemis or um the vedic moon and rohini um i don't think any of those are more applicable today than another because they were all birthed and told in a time that was socio-politically, spiritually, wildly different than the time that we live in now. Mm. Um, I think, if anything, they're almost more useful to us as people who study astrology and the movements of the planets and mythology. They're they're useful to us for the for the resonances and the similarities that they offer us. Um, the analogies that we can that invite us into like deconstruction and reconstruction and like critical somatic and like psychological engagement Mm. and yeah I'll leave it there I have more I could say yeah I mean I think you bring up really important points and um, yeah one of the things that I feel like in this conversation in particular is really important to to touch on and speak about is your uh know the difference pdf and mm. which i got as you know part of signing up to your newsletter and, and i know you mentioned that your kind of thoughts about that maybe have evolved a little bit i'm interested to hear what you think but it kind of deals with this idea of what is appropriation and to what degree can we separate these myths from the context in which they came? And to what extent, like thinking about 
both of our appreciation of, of Jason Holly's work, to what extent is it maybe ethically feasible to, to reimagine these myths in our time? Is there something that we're doing where we're, you know, I don't want to say dismembering them in some way, but are we not showing the respect that, that we ought to, because I know, I know you and I know myself, like I absolutely want to come into talking about these things in a way that's respectful and acknowledging that there are some pitfalls in doing so. And so I'm really interested in hearing, hearing your thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. I think there's always a gap between intention and impact. I think it's, well, maybe not always, but it's really, really hard to do anything with an intention and have the exact impact that your intention that that was set by your intention mm. um i'm reminded of the greatness of saturn by roberts fedoba and how he talks about retelling the myth as propitiation and so in dismembering and reconstructing myths whether it's Jason Holly or Gloria and Zaldua or us or someone else, mm. I think that when it is done with reverence, there's um, there's I don't want to say there's less of a moral issue because I think ultimately for me, ethics is subjective. And when we get into like the realm of purity consciousness, mm. we're all fucked. <laughs> Yeah. It's actually like if we're really trying to do it right, then we are, we can't possibly do it right because mm. following the myth of purity leads to an, it's just an impossible way to be. I mean, like if you look at cancel culture, mm. um, you can see how much harm has been created in the last few years with the ways that people have been like rampantly canceled on social media yeah. and I actually took the know the difference pdf off of my newsletter in the last couple of months and replaced it with like a freebie on the houses because I stopped feeling resonance with it because it, it there wasn't a ton of nuance mm. and when I first offered it years ago it was meant to help people like cut through to understanding how much harm was being caused but in the process I didn't realize how much harm I might have been causing and like I pulled it up today because you mentioned it for this podcast and I'm like wow some of my language was really harsh mm. and somebody whose work I've followed a lot uh, her name is Rachel Rice she's a former art teacher and creative does some I guess what you could call death work um mm. just a really inspiring critical thinker um and she talks about or years ago on podcasts and maybe she would change her mind today but um she talked about like how much like shaming people or criticizing like the um the white heteronormative male in activist spaces it's like well where are they gonna go they're going to go to the men's rights groups and mm. that's not really what we want and then i you know come across 
like We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown and this essay within it, which I think she released as a podcast. Um, and I don't remember what it was called. I don't know if it was called Dear White People or I'll find it for you for the show notes. Okay, wonderful. But there's just, I think I've pulled back a lot in my righteousness mm. over the last few years because I've had so many experiences in my own interpersonal relationships where I thought I was standing up for something or someone and then somebody maybe held an identity of a group of people that I was standing up for and they disagreed with the claim that I had made Mm -hmm. that I probably made because I heard a bunch of people talk about it on the internet. Yeah. And it's not that it's, you know, I think White Sage and Palo Santo is like a great example Mm. where I was so adamant, like, don't perpetuate the destruction of the forests and these plants and the extraction from the land. And like, that's all well and true. Um, And I personally choose not to purchase those plants today and haven't for years. And I was like, really adamant about like not purchasing them not using terms like smudging which I still feel pretty strongly about Mm -hmm. and I was I was with a friend maybe close to a year ago who has um roots uh like heritage with the people of Peru and Argentina um where Palo Santo is grown and she I was like going off on a rant and she was like you know I really like it that when I travel for my job, I can find my like native plants anywhere. And mm. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like I hadn't. And she's like, that helps me ground when I'm moving from place to place. And it was such a wave that rippled through me of understanding from a different perspective than my own or a different perspective that I had that had like been projected onto me that I absorbed and then maybe appropriated and there's just so many layers of projection of thinking that I know irrefutably what is right Mm. based on something that I learned and ultimately if I'm being more aligned with being a lunar person as Jason Holly would say like nocturnal consciousness is non-linear it's chaotic it's nuanced it's involves multiplicity mm. and the know the difference pdf in reviewing it it's so binary it's so polarized yeah <laughs> and it's not that there isn't truth in some of those things that i wrote mm. uh, that are really valid but it doesn't give enough context or leave enough space for the conversation that I actually want to have Mm -hmm. and I would much rather invite someone into an oral dialogue than throw this thing at them and be like accept this irrefutably you know so I guess that's I'll say that that's where I sit right now and I'm open to that changing yeah Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm reminded of my own perfectionism and mm-hmm. even what I talked about in, in the introductory episode of, of the podcast about the solar 
and this idea of we all deserve to shine like mm. we all deserve to have our place it makes me a bit emotional even thinking about it but hmm trying to hold on to my train of thought <laughs> um yeah there's this idea that i i hope anybody that receives this podcast and listens to this podcast is able to offer me i'll speak for myself able to offer me the grace of just being a human in progress mm -hmm. you know and i know it's easy for like a white masculine at least presenting person i mean gender is super complicated and <laughs> i don't want to get into that right now but um it's it's easy for me to say that like i'm doing my best but um there are some things i think that you cannot learn if you don't do them mm -hmm. you know if you don't make the mistakes and there's something about even doing this podcast where it's like this idea of perfect perfection as being an idea in the mind that's actually less than what perfection really is in the world. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely, I'm struck by that. And um, I know that there was more I wanted to say in response, but I cannot remember at the moment. So I think we'll, we'll move on if that's okay. Yeah. Works for me. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to just touch on before we move on to, to get into the Sag moon of it all. If you would like to talk a little bit about the the nodes um, and how they play into this all, you know, we already talked a little bit about planetary joys in the third house. So yeah, we just, we just had, I, I will say we just went through eclipse season and my eclipse story with uh, my sixth house being Taurus was that I'm getting laid off. So it was a very literal, eclipse season um for me and so I'm, I'm hoping that you can just share a little bit about the the role that the nodes play and um a little bit about eclipses as well mm -hmm. yeah i think um it's important to note that every planet has nodes yeah except absolutely and so when we're talking about the nodes usually we're talking about the nodes of the moon or the lunar nodes and it's interesting to me that the lunar nodes are the ones that get the most attention in astrology because they affect, at least in my experience, um, the biggest physical shifts in people's lives during eclipse season. Like uh, the so the nodes for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what they are is they're uh, mathematical points that represent. Um, the point at which the path of the moon around the earth and the perceived path of the sun around the earth intersect. And so there's two of them um, because there's two points at which those paths intersect and they are moving. Uh, and if you're looking at an astrological chart, they appear to move retrograde. Um, so they move backwards through the zodiac. And when we have eclipses, um, we are having a full moon or a new moon. Uh, within usually 18 degrees of where the nodes currently are. So mm -hmm. uh, we have an experience where either the light of the moon or the light of the sun gets blotted out for a moment. And uh, in the ancients understanding, this was a very scary moment mm -hmm. um, because sort of like 
horror movie moment where all the lights go out and something scurries through the dark and you don't know what it is. And I was actually reading part of Luzon no Oscuro this morning, and uh, I was reminded of um, Gloria Anzaldúa talking about this experience where this like shadowy figure, figure, I think she says, undulates across my carpet in her living room. And it was a snake, but it, for her, it was a nagual, which is a um, like a spirit that mm. sort of guides you. Uh, but that sort of reminds me of um, what happens when we have eclipses, where things sort of slip in, slip through a portal and change the fabric of reality. Mm. And so whatever houses we're having eclipses in, we experience radical re-envisioning, deconstructing, reconstructing of our realities in that area of our life. And um, I think it's interesting, the moon being the closest planet to the earth and the other luminary in relationship to the sun is the planet that ushers in the initiatory process of deconstructing and reconstructing reality Mm. of like having a huge paradigm shift to a particular area of life. I could go on, but I think that that's the primary thing that I would say about the lunar nodes and eclipses and the impact, emphasis on the word impact craters that the moon has on our day-to-day lives. Hmm. Yeah, you talking about that reminded me of my, my own eclipse experience, which, as I said, was learning that I was getting laid off. But it's really interesting that it happened in such a Torian way and connected to the the eighth house of cancer in my chart mm-hmm. where my boss was basically like, Hey, I've run out of money to fund this project. So I can't keep paying you, mm-hmm. but I can keep you on until the end of the year, basically. So it's like this slow, slow moving process that almost like if I didn't know better, I could be like, this might not actually happen. Uh, and maybe it won't, but there's something about like other people's money, the eighth house and, you know, changes in work, the sixth house. And it's been so interesting too what you talked about with like kind of these new ideas that can come in because I think part of my eclipse experience as well has been seeing people kind of come out of the woodwork almost to offer me support to get a different job. Mm. And, And my boss even, like my boss is like, the the ship is sinking. I want to make sure that you get off. And so he's like really gone out of his way to be super, super helpful, mm. which is so heartwarming. And, you know, it's like, I've been in this job for almost three years and it's like, okay, I actually formed a relationship with this person. Like this person is not just saying goodbye and like, you know, leaving me unsupported. And this that- job is podcasting is connected to podcasting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the podcast is a marketing tool for the consulting firm that I work for. And the Mm -hmm. podcast is about civic engagement in Los Angeles. I love also that Saturn moving through the third and like communicating about civic engagement. You went through this shift during the time that you've been in that job from like being an assist to being an authority. Mm -hmm. Um, and now stepping into starting your own podcast as an authority. Side note, it just like is so astrologer good. Yeah, it feels especially astrologer good with also my my midheaven in the 11th 
in Libra and Venus in Aquarius in the third. Yeah, all that, all that weird Aquarius, uh, lovely Libra connection. Yeah, so that's been been really interesting and and nice. Yeah, I think we should uh, move on now that we're over an hour into our conversation. Uh, maybe let's talk about the. <laughs> the sign of Aquarius and, and I'm sorry, not the sign of Aquarius, the sign of Sagittarius and, and what that means to you, what comes to mind when you, when you think of that sign. Sure. I love how much we've talked about myth Mm. in this particular podcast, because I think that for me, Sagittarius is a storyteller. It's connected to myth. And Mm. I create that association also from the myth of Chiron, the centaur, who's one of the primary um, symbols of Sagittarius. And Chiron was an ancient healer and teacher, was sort of othered by the other centaurs um, for being civilized mm-hmm. um, as opposed to bestial. Uh, and we could get more into that, but Chiron is credited with creating the constellations as a library that anyone had access to. So we have the constellations as images that represent different myths that carry an oral tradition Mm -hmm. that was then told and retold uh, as a way to learn and critique and philosophize and engage with the world and values and ideas and that to me is so Sagittarian Uh, and I think one of the things that I love about that is this uh, concept of generosity because the constellations or the stars are visible to anyone on the earth who looks up at the night sky Mm. and so the library is accessible to all Mm. and literacy isn't necessary i mean maybe okay literacy the ability to see the con the ability to know which constellation is which which i don't think most people have that capacity today but thinking about literacy today um like you need to be literate in order to read a myth but way back when you didn't need to be literate you just needed to have a story given to you so that you could then give it to someone else um, just by being told the story and then retelling it. And every time it's told, it changes. And that refers to the mutable quality of Sagittarius. Mm. And I could get into other things about Sagittarius, but I'd love to know your thoughts as well. Yeah, Um, I mean, when you bring up Chiron, the first thing that immediately comes to mind is that, I don't know how new it is, but um, the book I believe is called Achilles. Is that correct? I haven't read it by Madeline Miller. Yes. Yeah, I haven't read it. I've read Circe, which was life-changing Amazing. and so good. Amazing. Um. Both of her books, I, I think I, maybe I read Achilles first or I read Circe first, I'm not sure, but I devoured both of them basically. And um, there's a really lovely part of Achilles where Achilles goes to um, the Mount, I forget the Mount's name right now but where Chiron lives um and to be taught by him and Patroclus goes and Achilles' mom is pissed about it the fact that Patroclus goes because she doesn't want them together and she's a you know a god goddess unto herself and um 
there's something really uh, Sagittarian, I think, about. And and I know that Chiron is like, I don't know that much about Chiron. I know that Chiron is like a thing that people can like focus almost an, an astrology on. But Chiron does seem Sagittarian to me in that story because of the generosity that's associated with with Chiron and the learning because Achilles and Patroclus literally go to live in Chiron's home with him mm-hmm. um, and spend years learning all the things that a hero needs to know from Chiron. Mm-hmm. And like Patroclus just kind of shows up and Chiron's like, cool, no mm-hmm. big deal. And that feels, that feels very sad of me of like, Oh, we got another person. Like, awesome. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. No big deal um that that kind of saying yes that you pointed to uh at the beginning of the show so yeah I really like I really like that that version of the myth and and talking about kind of like living on the myths and retelling them I think that that's a beautiful example of of how that can be done and I mean granted Madeline Miller has I, I believe like a formal educational background in in classics and so she mm-hmm. is somewhat of an, an authority but I do think that those stories are just beautiful retellings of those myths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me to think also about Sagittarius as a meaning-making sign. Mm. Um, and the the power that story gives us to make meaning and what happens when something is, when we experience a difficult situation the Sagittarian way is to learn something from it that can then mm. be applied in the future. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important piece of Sagittarian consciousness and Jupiterian consciousness, Sagittarius yeah. being ruled by Jupiter. Yeah, I love that you bring that up. And I feel like we could kind of talk about Jupiter and Sag together, comparing and contrasting. Um because I really do resonate so much with that. And I've attributed that to my own Jupiter in the eighth placement and Mm -hmm. experiencing a lot of hardships. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like the Jupiter of experiencing the hardships is that um, being able to survive the hardships and being able to I've been very accustomed to to use the word God and I'm trying to move past that a little bit. Um, but I, I in historically have framed it like through a relationship with God, through a relationship with um, some kind of spiritual practice, being able to find meaning from the difficult things that happen in my life and having that be a thing that doesn't separate me from others but actually brings me into deeper relationship with others and helps me to to understand them in a way that I don't think I would be able to had I not had those experiences. Mm -hmm. Not to say that like the experience of pain is good, you know, Mm because I absolutely would not wish some, some of the things that I've experienced on other people at all, but I feel super grateful that I've been able to make meaning from them. I love that so much. My screen 
right after you mentioned God and your like tensions around it, um, did a quick blip, like a fuzzy, like <laughs> went gray, black for like half a second. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which I think is so synchronous. And it's interesting to think about the fact that we both have Jupiter in the eighth. I really resonate with that. Um but a lot of what you're describing, I resonate with more, I think, because the ruler of my seventh is in a Jupiter ruled sign, specifically mm-hmm. in the 12th, which I could talk about in a second. But I think when I think about the eighth house, um, I really think about death and assistance. Mm-hmm. Um and the things that assist us through loss. Um, and having Jupiter in the eighth in my experience is both having the experience of always having help through moments of loss and also often being someone who's equipped to help through others' loss or moments of need Mm. Uh, and so having Jupiter in the eighth in my experience puts me in a constant cycle of exchange Mm. and maybe it's also the I have Jupiter opposite Saturn exact and so I (laughs) often have this experience of um, everything you need and nothing you don't (laughs) Mm. Um, like when I was training to be a fine dining server in my early 20s that was a phrase that um, the person training me would say is make sure that the people on at the table have everything they need and nothing they don't so like salt and peppers get cleared after dinner before mm-hmm. dessert they should have exactly the utensils that they will need to eat the meal that they have and it's actually a really beautiful experience and a way to tap into generosity and i i certainly dip into scarcity and fear because of saturn but then the jupiter Mm. comes in and is like but have a little faith yeah um and i think it's a really beautiful placement in a death phobic culture Mm -hmm. uh, because my experience of death doesn't actually involve a lot of fear um Mm. It, if anything, I think it involves a lot of wonder and acceptance and awe at the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel tears come easily when loss happens. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I love that I can tap into the experience of death in a way that feels really true and rich and not disconnected. Mm-hmm. And doesn't necessarily push it away either. Mm. Uh, And I attribute a lot of that to my Jupiter. Something that comes to mind um, that, again, you talked about in your conversation with with Sabrina Monarch was this idea of that I resonated with a lot was this idea of, forgive me if I get it wrong, like addiction being related to denial. Mm. And I feel like that is so operative here because I think the thing that's challenging for me 
around death is not the fact of it, but the way that we can relate to it socially. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had um, people close to me pass away. And then I remember hating people saying, I'm sorry, Mm. you know? And then when people I know have people pass, like the only thing you can say is I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I Mm -hmm. haven't come up with a, with a better thing to say. And I, I try to frame it with like, I know that this is not (laughs) the thing to say, but I feel like all I can say is I'm sorry. And I hope that you know that I actually really mean that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting to me what you said about, uh, Jupiter in the eighth for you in Leo and this idea of, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's something about Jupiter, Jupiter and Leo, as you mentioned, being able to be there for others when they're going through these challenges. And I think that there's something about the, the generosity of Leo, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being solar. Yeah. And I think that Leo's can get a bad rap as being, a bit self-centered, but I do think that, you know, Leo's that I know, there is like this real desire to shine, not only for themselves, but for, to, as a service to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, You and I had had a conversation about this a while ago, but like Leo is associated with the sun and Apollo and Apollo being um, a god of song and Rachel Rice, the death worker that I mentioned talks I don't remember which podcast it is on but she was talking about this I think it is a Swedish tradition I'm not sure but there's a um a Nordic tradition where there's somebody whose job it is to wail at a funeral to help other people cry Mm. um and this idea that we make sound to help usher in an emotion or usher an emotion away or just like help it move through the body Mm. Um, yeah, so there's, I think there is something about that with Leonian consciousness that, uh, wants it shines or it sings rather like, like the stream singing, the, the plant singing, like the Orphic hymn to Apollo is just filled with song. Um, and like the changing of seasons Mm. that the sun guides. And I know this is a lunar podcast, so I won't stay here too long. Um, but I think that that's really important um, when talking about Leo. I th- One of the things that's coming up for me as we're talking about the eighth house too is this idea of inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, like the things that we inherit from death uh, and in a death phobic culture, we haven't, at least for generations, many people haven't inherited knowledge or stories of what to do when we lose someone. Yeah. And we've gotten to a point where we put people in a box and we cover them in makeup and we embalm them in ways that are not super sustainable or good for the earth. And we literally keep the body from returning to the earth Mm -hmm. by putting it in a coffin. Um, Sophie Strand talks about this in uh, her podcast, her her podcast interview with Ayana Young on For the Wild, 
which was recently released in the last couple of months. And she talks about how we've forgotten how to feed our bodies back to the earth. We've mm-hmm. forgotten how to feed our shit back to the earth mm-hmm. and to like work that into our um, cycle of like growth yeah, and how to return to the earth. And when I think about Jupiter in the eighth, I think there's either a rich inheritance of stories of what to do when we lose someone or we get ushered into experiences of loss or we just have the urge to seek out the information of what to do or the story that tells us what to do. And I'm sure that it's different in Cancer versus in Leo, but I do think it's interesting that they're that for us they're both in the signs that are um, ruled by the luminaries. Right. So there is like this repetition of faith in different iterations. Uh, Jupiter, Sun, and Moon all being different, all containing different qualities of like faith and spirituality and religion, or faith and religion and spirituality is <laughs> if we're going to put it um respectively yeah. jupiter sun moon uh yeah i don't know if that starts anything for there's you so much there there's so much there. <laughs> i almost feel like i don't even know how to respond um, there's so there's so much there but maybe we should stay with the moon since that's what this podcast is about and i think yeah. if we're if we're sticking with the moon and we're sticking with gloria and zaldua's ideas of the moon about like reconstructing and deconstructing deconstructing and reconstructing reality and like writing as a gesture of the body and so much more really what we're talking about is ritual mm. yeah uh and ritual is how we manifest spirituality It's how we take the values that we um, have or want to believe in and we create the world that we want to live in. Yeah. And that's how you build faith. That's Mm. how you activate faith. Yeah. And it's not linear. You can't do it perfectly. It shows up in a different shape. Mm-hmm. in a different part of the sky with a different amount of light every night yeah. sometimes it's dark and you say the things that you can only say to the dark mm. and sometimes it's full orbed sometimes it's now tending to decline <laughs> you know like yeah. pulling in um pieces from the the orphic hymns there's so much that is like cyclical and ritualistic and also embodied yeah uh, that we're talking about when we're talking about the moon and so if but the moon is like connected to life and death by the nature of the moon cycles and in ways that i think are more present than what the sun offers us Mm. yeah yeah i know that the 10th house often gets associated with the word praxis but i'm Mm. reminded of that in relation to the moon and the third this idea of literally embodying um, our ideals or what we think is valuable or important, um, mm-hmm. putting that into, into practice through, through ritual um, or what have you um, so that those things can be cultivated. Um, yeah. I feel like that's really, that's really rich. 
point there. And I do think that, I mean, it's funny, you know, we started talking about the sun and Leo and we were talking about Sagittarius, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's okay. Um, but I, I do kind of want to return to this idea of Sagittarius a little bit and um, actually kind of talk about um, this contrast maybe between Sagittarius and, and Capricorn because they do share some similarities in certain ways, but they're also kind of signs that are next to each other. So there is this, um, there is this difference between them mm -hmm. as well. Um, so I was actually, I was rewatching Jason Holly's Sagittarius and Myth and Psyche yesterday uh, in preparation for this. And Jason points out that Sag uh, and Capricorn are the only images uh, in like the, the Zodiac, the, the wheel of animals that are, we don't actually see in the world. Um, mm. They're not quote unquote of ordinary consciousness and that they're perhaps invitations to alternative consciousness. Mm. Um, but what we see with both Sagittarius and Capricorn is this sanitation of them over time. Uh, mm. So the image of Sagittarius goes from, uh, you know, the Babylonian time of being this creature that's a, a human and a horse and has a scorpion's tail mm. to a centaur to just the archer kind of loses its double bodiedness almost. And mm. similarly, Capricorn loses its tail and we start referring to it just as the goat rather than mm. as the sea goat. And my experience having a, like a cap stellium is that the sea part of the sea goat is incredibly important to understand the nature of that sign. And so I guess to kind of talk about those, because one of the things that Jason kind of talks about is that people that have Sag planets, and I think this might be particularly uh, important for people with Sag moons, and also particularly important with people that have a mixture of Sag and Capricorn, and perhaps a, a mixture of Sag and and other Earth placements. And I'd like to hear your take on that. Is this like need to function in the world, like this need to do all the things of the Earth that need to be done, but also this vital need to honor uh, the Sagittarian desire for unbridled freedom, freedom of expression. And I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts about that kind of uh, tension that we both kind of share in our charts. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting because I think for me, having my moon in the 12th house, it's very difficult for me to experience the unbridled freedom and the primal expression or the bestial expression of Sagittarius when I'm with other people. Mm. Like I am most able to tap into that when I am alone. Sometimes I really wish that weren't true. I have moments certainly where the container is just perfectly designed for me to tap into that with other people. Uh, and oftentimes that's with other Sag moons. Mm. Um, but I need to feel really safe to be that liminal. Mm. And it just doesn't happen very often. Uh, and I think part of the reason that it doesn't happen very often is exactly what you're talking about, this like sanitization and also the the Capricorn nature, I think, is I, I see the sanitation aspect of the Capricorn nature. And also because Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, 
there is something about the the container um that i think capricorn is maybe more adaptive to the to the structure of patriarchal imperial reality um mm. than sagittarius is i could be wrong about that i don't know i would probably mm. say something different on a different day or in five yeah. minutes <laughs> and for this reason mm. i again like the reduction of any idea to, you know, coming back to the know the difference PDF that I released before. And also like, it's not just Sagittarius and Capricorn that have been sanitized. Like um, if you look at Libra and the goddess Themis and the oracles of Delphi and all of the relations that Libra had to the, the Mare, um, the fates versus like lady justice and the scales mm-hmm. just like vast like most of the signs get reduced um, yeah. because we live in a world that's um, gotten progressively faster and likes the 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 quick quips mm-hmm. um, and the reductive banter because it's easy for the brain to tap into uh, and we don't love the things that take time. Now, I think that's where maybe we're able to understand what Sagittarius and Capricorn need the most because they're ruled by Jupiter and Saturn, which are part of the um, the list of traditional planets, but they're the furthest traditional planets from the sun. And so their orbits are longer. Mm-hmm. It actually takes a longer amount of time to ground and settle and open yourself to the intricacies of the nuances that these signs contain. And so the invitation to alternative consciousness requires the the dedication of our time and like the um the devotion of our pause <laughs> and the reverence in our willingness to travel to other worlds. Yeah. And see something that doesn't necessarily align with uh, the conditioned reality. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's so uh, that's so appropriate for the moon and Sag um, because they're really so one of the one of the things that that came to mind when uh, I was reading uh, Gloria Anseldua's work was this idea of what does she refer to it as? Um, do you know the word off the top of your head? It's like this idea. Oh, you're of, talking about ne, Nepantla. Yeah, ne, Nepantla. Nepantla, I think. Nepantla, yeah. It's this idea of um, liminality, the the world in between. And the Wikipedia article that I looked at specified like the space in between two bodies of water, which mm. I thought was so interesting, kind of like, this theme that we're having in this conversation of like the ocean and mm. the moon's rulership of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just feels so Sagittarian because um, of what Jason talks about with this idea. And again, like, this is kind of like, I feel like um, it's a bit of sensitive ground because it's easy to romanticize this idea of nomadism um, mm. or kind of talk about it in a way that's a bit extractive uh like it's something really good that we wish we had or could do um 
but isn't necessarily available to us. I don't know. So I want to speak to it with some kind of like sensitivity. Um, but Jason kind of talks about this idea of Sagittarian consciousness being a nomadic consciousness. The centaurs mm. are, are creatures that roam. Um, they're mm-hmm. not, they, they're not settled. They're not settlers uh, in the way that humans kind of settle down and have agriculture and build homes and things of that nature. And so there is this element uh, with Sagittarius of what Jason says is like grounded in motion. And I Mm. feel like that's so interesting uh, when considering the moon in Sagittarius, because you talk about the buoyancy of the Sag moon. And you've also mentioned identity and the kind of changing of identity. And I relate Mm -hmm. to that a lot. And another thing that I think comes to mind is this idea of Jason talks about in these kinds of nomadic cultures, there's this real acknowledgement of difference and this ability, which we don't necessarily sometimes have in our culture and which can, you know, we can kind of fall into the pitfall of trying to unify everything, not really respect difference as difference, prioritize unity. And this idea of being able to see the differences because things are always changing. Mm -hmm. And so a lack of relying on what they call in psychology as heuristics, which is kind of these structures of thought that you just rely on for familiarity. So I think that there's something to that with, with the Sag moon of, you know, that everything is going to change for better or for worse. And I, I think for me, I've tried to be appreciative of things when they're good and when Mm. I feel emotionally uplifted Mm. but then also remember when things don't feel so good that they're going to go just the same Mm. Mm -hmm. and and the caveat with that I've been talking a lot now so I'll let you take it after this but I think the caveat with that with the Sag moon is that when things don't move emotionally when there's a sense of stagnancy for me it can feel like a little bit unbearable sometimes because Mm -hmm. I'm just like, this needs to go, you know, again, it's that first decan of Sag where you're just like the arrow needs to shoot and it needs to hit its target and we have to move in a a direction. And yeah, I I don't know if that is evocative for you at all, but I'm interested. So evocative. The other moons that I come into contact with a lot apart from Sag and Aries is interestingly Aquarius and Capricorn and Mm -hmm my experience of them is always like, God, you take a long time in your feelings. I'm like, can we get out now? And it's, um, and I love them like so much, like adore them really. And our processes are so different and that's okay. And there's like space for all of them, but I, I do see my, my Sag moon starts to squirm. And I think the buoyancy for me really comes from this idea of Jupiter as being this big giant gaseous planet that has like literally filled with air like a balloon that's like or a buoy um and so there's the ability to be in the water and be on the surface at the same time Mm. so it's like we're not separate from the feeling we're not you know water is this this symbol of the of the deep unconscious or the deep emotional realm you can take a you can anchor a buoy Mm. you can keep it in the same place but it's still gonna rise to the surface Mm -hmm. um it's still gonna float and 
I love that about the Sag moon. I think it's one of the most resilient moons for that reason. I really love this idea of the centaur like grounded but roaming uh, because and this idea of like nomadic the nomadic moon my dad bless his heart is like he wouldn't call himself a historian I don't think but he's like constantly reading about the um evolution of civilization throughout the world mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's reminded me a few times in the last few years when I talk about how like the the privilege of having moved like 3,000 miles away from where my parents are from and he's like you know, children have been moving 3,000 miles away from their parents since the beginning of time. And this idea of a really like rooted culture where you have multiple generations all in the same place is actually relatively new. Mm. And it was like, I I sometimes hate when he's right, but he, I think he's right. That's so Jupiterian. It's, it's really taking awesome. this like huge picture of like the span of history. And yeah. And like, well, what's actually normal? what's actually normal is this like really zoomed out um thing and 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 it's true that we that there is certainly some privilege to the ability to do that and also very often the people who have done that have done that as refugees yeah where they've been exiled and Mm -hmm. for me that's really on point with my moon in the 12th um and Oh, I I want to go there and then I want to go to a different place. I want to go to the different place first. I think the this you were talking about like the nuances and the differences and the Sag Moon's ability to be with the change, but I, you were also talking about wanting to unify as a diurnal urge yeah. um, to reduce. But I think when I think about nomads and I think about stories and myths, most of the stories and myths in um, nomadic cultures come from the land. And again, mm-hmm. referring back to this conversation that I was listening to with Sophie Strand, where she's talking about language. Like if you had to reduce the the English language is actually like appropriating a bunch of other languages, mm-hmm. but most languages actually come from the land and if you had to reduce your vocabulary to 50 words, like activism and justice probably wouldn't be in the vocabulary of 50 words. Like, what are the words that you actually need to live? Uh, and they would be about relationality and about the land. But the language and the landscape is always changing when you're nomadic, which mm-hmm. is why the constellations are so important, because you actually have a thread that connects you regardless of where you are on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this quality of the changing landscape, but also the, the unifying faith or the blanket or the envelope of the sky and the stars, uh, that I think Sagittarius as a visionary sign wants us to look up rather than down. Yeah. You know, like this whole idea of like shoot for the stars and hit the moon. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, the the gap between intention and impact can be really big. And also the intention is effusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the impact might not meet the height of the intention, but it hopefully has a much bigger positive impact than it would have if the intention was minute mm. and specific. Maybe I'm 
I hope I'm making sense. <laughs> You're totally making sense. Yeah. One thing that, that very quickly that you reminded me of with that is this New Yorker article that I read about birds. Uh, I read New Yorker articles about birds and um, their like incredible sense for navigation. Hmm. And one of the things that was um, that the article was commenting about was that humans have lost their sense for navigation. Um, Hmm. And there's this idea, I think, in Sagittarius and looking at the stars and in reading the constellations and having this kind of astral literacy, for lack of a better term, being able to navigate through that. And um, there's something very uh, nomadic or very rooted in the idea of the centaur looking up at the sky, finding grounding in motion and being able to being able to move and know where you're, you're needing to get to go uh, through looking at the stars. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, it's funny because I'm always, I pretty much always know what sign the moon is in, like in the current moment. And so I'll look up at the sky and if I see the moon, I know what's happening a little bit more quickly than I would if the moon isn't in the sky and I'm having to think about, okay, where's the sun? Like what season is it? Mm-hmm. What's rising on the Eastern horizon? Um, like what sign is setting, which planets are where, and can I find them? Like last night, it was pretty easy to find the moon and Mars right. uh, together and know, you know, what was on the Eastern horizon based on Gemini being in the, you know, rising in the East. So I really appreciate hearing that. I think for me, the moon ruling my seventh from the 12th, this this piece of navigation, um, I really see the sixth and the 12th as the houses where we enter a new world if we're looking at diurnal motion. So the motion of the sky around the earth, whenever we're entering the sixth house or the 12th house, we're leaving one world and entering another And I think like, for me, stepping into a new world requires a paradigm shift. And so the moon ruling the seventh from the 12th has been an experience of constantly coming into relationship with people who have said things or ushered, invited me to experiences or just become significant people in my life that have caused or inspired me to have a paradigm shift of how I see the world and it's really relational and I have to like emotionally and psychosomatically experience a whole new reality but it is usually usually that door is opened by another person and Mm. so I have a lot of gratitude for those people for who those people have been yeah that's a, such a wonderful, like, I feel like that's an example of like, you have to live the astrology to know, you know, the moon and Sag in the 12th and, you know, the seventh house being cancer ruled by the moon. Like it's really, that's a real, um, I think, apt description of like what that could look like in, in one's life. And so- I think just to like reiterate your point of navigation of like people can look at, okay, where where is the cancer house in their life and where is their moon and what is the moon helping them navigate? Mm, yeah. It's <laughs> wow. That's beautiful. 
Uh, before I full on uh, start crying, let's uh, wrap it up with our <laughs> let's wrap, wrap it up with our last question. Of um, so obviously you've tracked the moon. You were just talking about that. Uh, how does the tracking of the cycles of the moon in relation to your own emotional life go? Um, what have you found by doing that tracking? And also, how does the moon, how is it an important part in your your own spiritual practice? Mm. I think tracking the moon in my emotional life is like really nuanced and it changes depending on what aspects the moon is making, what sign it's in. I notice it the most when the moon is void, of course, by modern description. So um, when the moon makes its last aspect to a planet in a sign before it enters another sign, which is different than the Hellenistic version of a void, of course, moon. But when the moon is considered to be void, of course, by modern standards, it is said to be untethered and anything that you initiate doesn't come to fruition. And I have experienced that time and time and again. And so it's actually helped me not get super emotionally attached to anything that's initiated during a void of course moon. Um, I used to be really wrecked by those experiences where I was late or um, had made a plan and the plan just really fell apart. Uh, and now when somebody invites me to something or tells me about something during a void of course moon, I make like a mental note of like, oh, I'm probably not going to go to this. Like, my sister-in-law invited me to this holiday party um, that's happening this Sunday, like weeks ago. And I noted that the moon was void. And I was like, oh, this is probably not going to happen. And like a series of events happened and I'm not going to make it. And so like just tracking the moon cycles, like help me can help me turn the faucet on just a little bit instead of all the way and not feel so chaotic and untethered. And then also know when something's going to pass like certain moons particularly an Aquarius moon like void of course moon like really causes a lot of anxiety and so mm. I can know that that's happening and just be like okay I can trust that actually at this moment in time when the moon enters Pisces I'll feel a little bit better yeah um I also notice like heightened emotional experiences around the full moon and um interestingly heightened emotional experiences in the lead up to the new moon but I think that has to do with menses mm. <laughs> anything which is still related to the moon absolutely yeah um in terms of the moon being an important part of my spiritual practice it was the moon that I started working with first like publicly uh in a very third house way I used to lead monthly new moon ceremonies which is interesting because mm -hmm. the new moon is really a time when I think it's nice to be internal and not be with a bunch of people but I set to create this really like small safe container mm -hmm. and people would come uh, I started it in Brooklyn and then eventually um, moved out to Oakland and hosted those gatherings there and I would tell the myth of whatever sign the new moon was in and um, explain, you know, make a lot of meaning out of that. And people would bring food. It was always a potluck and I'd ask everybody to bring a notebook. Um, and at the end I would give a word bank of vocabulary. Also interesting to note the the, my moon is separating from Jupiter and applying to Mars and Gemini. And so mm. making meaning from words is um, a huge part of my 
spiritual practice um, mm. and etymology is something that I really love. But I would give everybody a word bank of words that related to the sign or the planet that ruled the sign that the moon was in and instruct them to make a manifesto. Um, and I made some as well. And I tried to find them, but like the good Sag moon Pisces Mercury that I am, I don't know where the stack of my old manifestos went. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it would be like a list of anywhere from like seven to 15 um, I don't know if I would call them affirmations, but like statements that kept a vision in mind mm -hmm. of something that you wanted to work on over the next month based on whatever house the new moon was in, in your chart. And you would sort of plant a seed and then write the manifesto with these words. So if it was a Sag moon, for example, you'd be like, I leap into the confidence that I can achieve this goal, you know, mm -hmm. or I tell stories for my target audience, or I, you know, if the moon, if the Sag moon is in the eighth house, it would be something like I wander knowing that my grief will move on you know mm. like terms that you would maybe associate with Sagittarius but work with the um the topics of that house so that you could create a list of ideas that align with your intention and recite them every day so that by the time you get to the full moon you have instilled this thread of remembering mm -hmm. what it is that you set out to do uh, in a way that incorporates the energy of the moment. Mm. And that was a big part of my spiritual practice for a long time. I don't do moon manifestos every month anymore, but I do every once in a while. And those have been really powerful. And people who used to come to the ceremony still reach out to me every once in a while. And they're like, I wrote, I wrote a moon manifesto for this month. And think like, that was such a powerful experience. And um, it's cool to hear people like across the globe still practicing it. Yeah. That's so, so cool to, to hear that not only did you create this thing that gave people meaning in that time, but that you gave people tools basically to carry on into their own mm -hmm. practice. And I might be wrong, but there does seem something uh, very fitting about your chart um, where Mercury, you know, you talk about the moon, Jupiter and Mars, and then you have Mercury and the sun and, you know, in Pisces and this idea of like honoring the moon through through words and community and it mm -hmm. feels very very fitting mm. thanks yeah well do you have anything that you want to add any imparting thoughts about the moon i think the moon will nurture you and be nutritious if you ask to be fed and if mm. you feed her mm. i love that yeah, that's a really, that's a really actionable takeaway, I think. So I really appreciate that. All right, Erin, uh, where can we find you? And is there anything you're working on that you'd like to share? 
share with us? Mm. Um, you can find me at E.T. Shipley, ship like a boat, E-Y, um, dot com and everywhere. So at E.T. Shipley on Instagram, www.etshipley.com. I am technically on Twitter. I haven't been on Twitter in months and I don't know if it even exists anymore. <laughs> Um, you can find old musings if you want. <laughs> it somehow survived all of the <laughs> astrology that's happening to its to its inception chart. Yeah, somehow. Okay, cool. Good to know. Yeah. So um, that's a place where you can find me. Uh, the best way to work with me if you want to work with me one-on-one is to get on my newsletter because I open my books usually at the end of each month for the following month and I keep them open for just a few days. Mm-hmm. Um. I am also teaching a workshop at the end of January on astrology and attachment in Carmen Spaniola's The Numinous Network, which is a really cool space um, if you want to learn about regulating your nervous system and all kinds of other witchy somatic things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of guest guides as well as teachings directly from Carmen and a bunch of courses that you can you can join and binge it all and leave after a month if you want. Uh, she's really generous in that way and very Jupiterian, uh, mm. which I think is so cool. I am hopefully going to be releasing my third and sixth house lecture on care work and disability justice in the next month or so. I've been saying that for six months, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just trying to get everything together. And I'm also planning to reopen some uh sessions on cadent houses that i started in the beginning of 2021 uh so that is all things to look out for if you sign up for my newsletter or follow me on the social medias wonderful yeah and as i said i my first ever astrology reading was with you and i highly recommend people get a consult with you so sign up to aaron's newsletter and um yeah we didn't talk about attachment uh style and the moon next conversation i guess (laughs) um okay wonderful and uh yeah i'll link all those things in the show notes and um i'll definitely make announcements through my socials when when your lecture goes and when your class goes live as well so cool that's it erin thank you so much for for being my very first guest on this podcast it's been such an amazing great conversation and I really am so grateful uh, that you did this so thank you so much thank you Timothy this has been such a rich conversation one that I think I actually would want to re-listen to and I'm yeah super in awe of you and the leaps and bounds that you've made and the work that you're doing and I'm really excited about wherever this goes Um, thanks for letting me be your first (laughs) yeah absolutely thank you so much for that and um i'll talk to you soon sounds good all right thanks for listening to the show i'll see you next time to find a transcript of this episode please subscribe to my Substack, which is linked in the show notes And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. See those links in the show notes as well.
please feel free to follow me there and let me know that you found me from listening to the show. If you have any questions or feedback on the show, please feel free to email me at sphallhorary at gmail.com. In the show notes, you can also find links to the websites of the astrologers and other resources that I mentioned in this episode, as well as links to the cover art and the intro and outro music. Thanks. See you next time.